You know, Rob, the world of comic book movies kind of had a tectonic shift when it got announced that James Gunn, who had been directing for Marvel and had a pretty big role in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, kind of being the architect of the galactic scale stuff for Kevin Feige. He, of course, famously got let go by Disney and then picked up by Warner Brothers. And it was announced that he was going to do a Suicide Squad movie. To which all of us thought, perfect, this is great. Then we saw a little glimpse of his Suicide Squad at DC Fandom. The stuff looked incredible, absolutely incredible. Now something interesting is coming out here. James Gunn was recently being an interview, and he basically explained that when he took the job, DC told him, you can kill anybody in this movie that you want, anybody. When asked specifically, hey, on Twitter, did that does that include Harley Quinn? He said, anybody. DC told me I could kill anybody in this thing. This tells me a couple of interesting things. Number one, it kind of confirms, Rob, what you and I believed going into this whole thing, that when James Gunn left Disney at, at the time, he, of course, he's back on board now. He's going to do Guardians 3. But when James Gunn left Disney... Every single studio in Hollywood lined up for the James Gunn sweepstakes and they all made him pitches and they all made him offers saying, come on over and direct whatever you want. And he landed with Warner Brothers to go over and do a DC property. We kind of knew they would give him a blank check, right? Like we kind of knew they would give him a, a clean pad of paper and a pen, say, do whatever you want. You want to do Superman? Well, we'll let you do, you want to do, you want to do a Justice League movie? We'll let you do, you want to do this? They would, they were going to let him do anything he wanted. He chose Suicide Squad. So we kind of got a feeling they would probably give him a lot of leeway in that. Not surprising. But Rob, this may surprise you, buddy. There is actually something about this that really doesn't sit well with me. And that's this. In telling James Gunn that he could kill anybody he wants in this movie, including Harley Quinn, that to me says that Warner Brothers is still at least to some degree caught in that same trap they have caught themselves in, which is they don't have an overall plan. I'm not saying they absolutely don't have an overall plan, Rob, but when you tell an individual director and that director has a bunch of characters who have been connected to other pieces of your overall puzzle and says, oh yeah, you can kill anybody you want. Go ahead. To me, that, that smells a little bit like, uh, so you're saying you don't have any future plans for like a Harley Quinn? You don't know what you're going to do with any of these things? Like it just, one of the things that set Warner Brothers apart negatively before was that with their shared cinematic universe movie, they just let the directors do whatever they want. And that compromised their overall universe, unlike Marvel, which had a Kevin Feige to keep everything working together. And so this concerns me a little bit. It concerns me a little bit because everything I've seen out of Warner Brothers in DC since Walter Hamada became the new sheriff in town has been all positive, all good stuff, all positive. Hearing this part makes me a little bit cautious. I know, Rob, you hear about James Gunn being given a blank check, kill anybody you want in this thing, including Harley Quinn, if you want. What stands out to you when you hear that? Well, for, okay, first of all, when I hear that, I'm like, really <laughs> like if you could you could you really kill margot robbie i mean i think i think it makes the movie going experience a little bit more fun 
because if anyone, if everyone is up for grabs, who knows what's going to happen in the movie? You know, they could have shocking to live and die in L.A. deaths where your main character gets shot in the face. Spoiler alert at the end of the movie. Um, I, I, I kind of like that idea. After all, John, it's called the Suicide Squad. Someone's got to die. Right. Um, but I I think like you. I don't know if it shows a lack of planning. I, I think it's I think it's a little flippant. You know, I mean, they're not going to kill the peacemaker because John Cena is going to play that character in a series on HBO Max. Um, Although, isn't I, that going to be an origin story? Didn't they say that was going to be a peacemaker uh, origin oh, story? Oh, is that what they're going to Maybe. Well, I, I could be wrong about oh, that. Well. <laughs> but, I mean, there are a lot of characters. I, you know, I could see them killing off, like, I don't know, King Sh- Killer Shark or what a King Shark. King whatever. Shark. I, I mean, I could see that happening. Captain Boomerang uh, would probably yeah, be yeah, on the chopping block. Yeah. I, but I, I just think that, you know, that I, I don't like the idea they publicize that kind of stuff because it seems a little... It just seems a little flippant, you know, a little, uh, 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 I don't know. But I think it does make the movie-going experience more fun. I mean, now I have to see it the very first show, so I don't I, – I, I'm not spoiled as to who dies. Well, I know? mean, you raise a good point. I, I mean, because, like, what shows like Sons of Anarchy, Game of Thrones, uh, Sopranos did, by killing off main characters – Almost on whims sometimes. Right. It made it so when you were watching shows like those, you could never feel safe with any of the characters. No. It doesn't matter who who you love, what characters are your favorite. It doesn't matter. Like traditionally in movies or TV, oh, yeah, that's the big character. Well, they're clearly not going to die. <laughs> right. It made watching Sons of Anarchy very interesting because guess what? Bobby could die the next episode, and then he did. I mean, which <laughs> which really does keep you on the edge of your seat. If you watch Vikings, I mean, the main character of Vikings for the first four seasons bites it. I mean, it, like anything can happen. And so I, I think you raise a really good point. I think you raise a very, very good point that if nothing else, this really does – put me as a fan in the mindset when I go in to watch this, there's no sacred cows in this movie. No. Like literally, and because when I go in, when I went into the first Suicide Squad movie, well, you know Harley Quinn's not going to die. You know that. You know, Dej- you know Will Smith's character is not going to die, right? Maybe James Gunn is setting up a different set of expectations. That's really, so if we see a situation where Harley Quinn's really in trouble, she might actually die. And yep. so, you, you raise a good point there. Question is for you guys. What do you think about James Gunn's comments there saying, hey, they gave him a blank check. He can do whatever he wants in this movie. He can kill anybody in this movie that he wants. And he said some people are going to die in this. Who do you think that's going to be? What do you make of these comments? Jump into the comments section below and let us know your thoughts. All right, guys. With that stuff down and out of the way, let's now move into our main topics today. And how do we select our main topics here on the John Campy Show? Well, it's really rather simple. You see, you guys come up with them. Whenever you come across a big piece of news that you think we should talk about here on the show, simply go anytime 24-7 over to www.thejohncampishow.com slash contact. Once you guys get there, you're going to see a form. Fill it out with your topic or question. It's totally free. Hit submit, and then maybe, just maybe, you might see your topic featured as a main topic here on The John Campia Show. With that down, let's get into main topic number one. And our first main topic today gets submitted to us by Steve Calderon, who writes, Ben Wheatley, 
has been hired to direct the sequel to The Meg with Jason Statham returning. However, what does this news mean for Alicia Vikander's Tomb Raider sequel uh, that Wheatley signed on to direct? Do you think he left the, the project for Meg 2, or is there a chance Ben will direct both films? All right, thanks a lot for sending that in, man. And yes, first up here, Meg. Meg is getting its sequel. Now, this is not a big surprise because the first Meg did quite well at the box office. A lot of people quite enjoyed it. I got to admit that even as a big Jason Statham fan, I'm a huge Jason Statham fan. I wasn't thrilled with the first Meg movie, but regardless of that, the fact is it did very well at the box office. A lot of people did have a lot of fun with it. And so you knew a sequel was kind of inevitable. I'm surprised it's taken this long, but it looks like they are finally making movements in this to get things done. This comes to us from the folks over at The Hollywood Reporter. Wheatley, who's been tapped to direct it, is a British filmmaker with a perchant for the dark and satirical skewed. He has racked up awards for his horror and crime movies, such as Sightseers and Kill List, with each directorial outing working its way up to the budgetary and acting ranks. He generated buzz for the 2015 dystopian thriller High Rise, which starred Tom Hiddleston. I actually kind of liked High Rise as a matter of fact. I did too. I liked it a lot. Tom Hiddleston and Jeremy Irons and follow that up with the action comedy Free Fire, which I also thought was kind of fun. Had a little yep. bit of um, shoot 'em up feel. Had a little bit of a yes, shoot 'em up did. feel to it, uh, which starred Brie Larson, Silly Murphy, and Army Hammer. Now, regarding the Tomb Raider 2 stuff, I have actually not heard anything about that in a long time. So I, A, on the one hand, I wouldn't be surprised if he's not attached to it anymore. But B, listen, lots of directors will have two or three projects lined up. So just because he's doing one, that doesn't necessarily mean he does. he's not still intending to do another, right? Steven Spielberg has several, several projects lined up that he wants to do. James Gunn has several projects lined up that he's going to be doing. So I, I don't think that sways it here or there. Um, but then again, I'm just not sure that he was still involved anyway. But let's get back to Meg. Meg is just one of those good old-fashioned... Go to the movies, get some popcorn, sit back and have and enjoy the ride kind of movies. And this ain't no Shakespeare. Uh, there isn't what you call narrative drama in Meg Rob, but the movie was what it was. Again, it worked for a lot of people more than it did for me. I didn't I didn't love it myself, but a lot of people had a lot of fun and it made a lot of money. Rob, what do you think about number one, the fact that they're actually getting some movement going on Meg now? And what do you think about the director choice? Well, first of all, I like Ben Wheatley a lot. I mean, Kill List is an, one of these. There's been a few low-budget horror-themed films that really knocked me out, and Kill List was one of them. And uh, movies like The Invitation, and like you said, I, I really liked High Rise based on J.G. Ballard, who wrote Empire of the Sun, J.G. Ballard's novel. Uh, I think that he's a filmmaker to watch. He's proved he's uh, able to, he's deft with very diverse kinds of material, whether it's action, uh, or whether it's more character-driven stuff <clears throat> and horror. So I, I think this is a, a good choice. I understand why they picked him for this, but I have to tell you, it's a little lowbrow to me. Like, I, I mean, Ben's a writer-director. I, I, I mean, I get it, man. You want to get that fat studio payday money, that global franchise cash, because that allows you to, you know, one for me, one for them. I understand. I just... I think Ben Wheatley is a is a filmmaker that shouldn't be wasted on sequels. Um, but I understand, and I think I think I I will I would get more excited for a Meg two with him directing, because I think he'll inject 
even more of a dark sense of humor into the film, which would make it worth seeing. I mean, Meg, dude, Meg's kind of fun. I mean, it's it's kind of fun. So uh, Meg well, 2 might be even more fun. Well, see, here's the thing, too. Like, I, I that was one of the first things that stood out to me. It's like one of these things, like the old Sesame Street game, one of these things is not like the other. When you look at Whitley's, like, his, his filmography, and then you add Meg 2 in there. <clears throat> yeah. But the first Meg... Which, again, I don't even think was all that good. Many disagree with me, and that's fine. But I didn't even think it was all that good. That movie still made $530 million. Yep. That thing made over half a billion dollars. You Now, if he can come in there right now as a director, add more depth to it, make it more than just schlocky fun, like still keep the schlocky fun part, but give a little bit more to it. Give a little more meat to the characters. Give, give just something a little bit heavier to it to incorporate with all that fun. And if he can get this, this movie to make 600, $650 million, now you've got a guy who's critically lauded for these smaller projects that he's done and proven he can bring home a big blockbuster at the same time. If he can do that, He's going to be right to write his own ticket. He's mm. he's going to be in a really good position that if he can step in there and show I can do it all. You want to give me a yeah. little psychological crime thing? I'll take it with low budget and make it great. You want to give me a big popcorn kind of budget about a big shark and Jason Statham punching it in the face? I can take that and I'll make you $700 million. I'm telling you what, I think for him – this is a really good move because I, I think he's built his reputation in one way. If he can now evolve that into another, because Rob, like seriously, what does that do for him? If he can now step in there and show that he can, like a Steven Spielberg, deliver a great art house, like Oscar kind of movie and step in and do a huge, big blockbuster makes a lot of money. Like, doesn't that throw a lot of doors open for him? I think absolutely it does. And that's why that's why you take these jobs on. You know, you see what people a lot of the time people what people don't understand is working within the studio ecosystem is a specific talent in and of itself. You know, there's a reason why the studio has a list of only about 20 people that are acceptable to do these big tentpole films. And if you can get in there, it 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 it, it, it it's amazing. I mean, of course, the risks are there there are great risks and great rewards if you if you fail spectacularly in that ecosystem you're out you know you're, you're out of the family tom like they said in the godfather <laughs> but um uh you know ben has made his name in as i as if i know him mr wheatley has made his name in in the indie arena time and time again so whether he's doing tomb raider 2 or uh this it's the next move for him career wise and if it works and he becomes one of those venerated uh, people in that at that level, I mean, he uh, he's um, he's good to go. I mean, I would love to see him take on an MCU movie. Mm. I would love to see him take on something, maybe a dark, a, 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 a highbrow literary thriller like a girl with a dragon tattoo. But something along those lines, you know, at the studio level, I think. I think he's he's I think he's one of the mo more exciting directors that we have working today. So I think it's good. Here's the one question I have about Meg, too, though. So even in Meg, they went from a big shark to an even bigger shark, if, if you remember. So like number how big does the Megalodon have to be in the next one? Because yeah. law diminishing a term, I like the next one's always got to be bigger and badder. Is it going to be bigger than a U.S. aircraft carrier? Is it going to be? And then are they going to have Jason Statham punch it in the face? 
I mean, or, that's... or or John, they could have more than one. Right. Like yeah, they... aliens. It could go the aliens route. You have a whole school and, and basically then they have a Sharknado crossover and it's all a big shared cinematic universe. Question is for you guys. What do you think about this news? couple of interesting things there. Number one, Meg 2 is finally getting some movement. What do you think about the director choice? And will we see Jason Statham punch an even bigger shark in the face? Jump down to the comment section below and let us know your thoughts. All right, guys. With that down, let's move on to main topic number two. And our second main topic today gets submitted to us by Richard. And Richard writes, So apparently Creed 3 is finally starting to move forward. As Michael B. Jordan is in talks to be the director, making this his directorial debut. I still had a slightly bit of hope that Ryan Coogler would come back. Yeah, I think all of us did. But I'm excited to see what Jordan brings as a director what do you think? All right. Thanks a lot for sending that in, man. And yes, look, we all suspected that we were going to see a Creed 3. Now, Creed 1, directed by Ryan Coogler, who, of course, then went on to direct uh, Black Panther, did not direct Creed 2. Creed 2 wasn't quite as good as the first Creed, in my opinion, but it was still pretty good. I still thought Creed 2 was, was pretty good. Yeah. But a lot of people thought, Rob, that a another creed film was pretty much an inevitability they thought it's it's a for sh- it's a sure thing it's inevitable mm. they're going to do a creed 3 well it really hasn't been an inevitability because when we think of creed you think of a big big hit but the reality is the creed movies have not exactly blown up the box office right you look at creed 1 creed 1 made a very modest 173 million dollars now that was still a win for them because I think they only spent about 30 million to make that movie, 30 to 35 to make that movie still a win, but not exactly blockbuster numbers. Creed two did better. So you see the trajectory going up, but still 214 million Rob, we've seen movies make more than that on their opening weekend, 214 million worldwide again, profitable. That's the main thing profitable but not exactly a big box office hit, right? So I don't actually think that a Creed 3 was an inevitability. Always thought it was a possibility. Never really thought it would be an inevitability, but here we are. They're talking about him doing it. Now, this comes to us from the folks over at IndieWire who writes, Michael B. Jordan is reportedly in talks to not only star in, but also direct the third installment of the Creed film series. The news was first reported by Deadline with the context of a larger story about the studio MGM, which produced and distributed Creed 2 in 2018 and produced Creed with Warner Brothers distributing domestically in 2015. The first Creed film was helmed by Ryan Coogler, who directed Jordan in the films Fruitvale Station of Black Panther. Creed 2, meanwhile, is directed by Stephen Chappelle Jr. Chappelle Jr. And we, we talked about that a little bit earlier. Rob, I... I'm often a little bit hesitant and nervous about directors, actors directing their first movie and not wanting to see a first time director take on a big tentpole film. I love Simon Kimberg, but I was always, you know, this, I was always, always not for the idea that his first directorial effort was going to be a big major tentpole X-Men film. Oh, I yeah. did not think that was a good idea. I did not think that was the right move. I think he needed something smaller. It is for those exact same reasons, Rob, that I actually think 
that Michael B. Jordan directing a Creed film is perfect. Why is it perfect? Because yes, Creed, the Rocky franchise, that's a big name. But as we've seen, they're actually small films. Mm. They're not made with $100 million budgets. They don't have the financial future of the studio riding on them. They're made for $30 million, $40 million, $50 million. On top of that, he's going to step in and do his directorial debut in an IP in a franchise that he already knows and is comfortable with. That's key. I think that works into his favor insanely. Like It's not like he's stepping into some brand new IP and that's going to be his first directorial effort. He is very comfortable in this IP. He's worked with a couple of great directors in this IP already. So if there's an IP that's really ideal for him to do it, it's in this IP that he's already very comfortable in. It's a small film, really, when you consider it. It's a film he's familiar with. It's a character he's familiar with. So, Rob, for me personally, I look at this and I go, yeah, if Michael B. Jordan wants to get into directing, this is the ideal starting point for a guy like him. So now, will he do a good job? I have no reason to believe he's going to do a good job. I have no reason to believe he's going to do a bad job. But if you want to do it, this is the place to start. So I think this is absolutely perfect. And I'm happy that we're going to get a Creed 3 because I like Creed 2. Anyway, Rob, you hear this news. What do you see as the ups or downs? I think it's a, the, the upside is great. I mean, Michael B. Jordan is a very smart guy. He's He's been in the industry. You know, he was I first saw him on Friday Night Lights. Uh, he's watched. He's obviously being a big, been in big movies like Black Panther. Um, he's seen how these films are made. Obviously, Creed 1, Ryan Coogler's Creed 1. Uh, he's got Ryan Coogler to draw upon, you know, to, to as a resource, obviously, being that they've done two movies together. And I, I think that, you know, for someone like him to take an opportunity like this is what you're supposed to do, you know, in terms of building a career for yourself. Um, and I think he's going to make the most of it. And, uh, you know, it is rough when you're starring and directing. But I keep thinking about people like. You know, somebody like that old Kevin Costner who made that movie, you know, about the wolves, Dances with Wolves that won how many Academy Awards? And and when you really know what you're doing, and I think a guy like Michael B. Jordan is going to be really well prepared and know exactly what he's going to want to do. And I, I, I'm excited. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm unabashedly a huge fan of his. I've been a huge fan of his acting. I wish I looked like him with his, with his abs. You know, I love that guy. I just, I, I love Michael B. Jordan. And uh, look, man, I got my Killmonger figure right over there. And I wasn't going to get it until they, until they made it with his head sculpt. And they did. Uh, and I'll tell you what, dude, he has, he's already proven he's one of the best acting in the business right now. When you go all the way back to things like Fruitvale Station, and then you look at his performance in Creed, and then you see him in a Black Panther. And what was the one he just did with uh, Just Mercy? The one he did with Jamie Foxx? Yeah. So good in that. If he can make this transition to directing, he's going to be a major, major threat in this business. And, and, and who knows? Maybe he has no directing chops whatsoever, but I think the best place for him to discover that is an environment he already knows and is comfortable with, and where there's not a lot of huge financial stakes, it's not a huge blockbuster franchise. This is so perfect. Good job for him to pick this as the one he wants to go after. Good job for, for MGM because, I mean, hey, if this works, this is a great marketing tool too. 
that Michael B. Jordan himself makes his directorial debut doing Creed 3. It's a win all the way around. Now let's see how the movie works out. Question is, guys, what do you think about this? Jump down to the comment section below and let us know your thoughts. All right, guys. With that down, let's move into main topic number three. And our third main topic today gets submitted to us by Darren McKeel or Mackle, uh, who writes, Hey, John, it's been great to see production gearing up in the movie world, and now some projects are even finishing. Just read that Shang-Chi has wrapped production, which is a great sign. Are you surprised they were able to finish the project under the current circumstances? And what are your expectations for the film? All right. Thanks a lot for sending that in, man. And yes, not too long ago, it, it feels just like yesterday that we were getting excited that production on stuff had finally been able to start back up again. Because remember, all not only were theaters closed, all production on everything had been shut down. And Rob, it feels just like yesterday that we heard that Avatar 2 was going back into production in New Zealand, that the Batman had started up production again. But now we're entering that phase. We're actually hearing about productions that are now finishing. You know, we talked the other day, Tom Holland finished production on the Uncharted movie. And now we get news that the Marvel film, Shang-Chi, has wrapped up production. They are done their principal photography. They may have to do reshoots at some point, as most of these comic sure. book movies do. But they have wrapped production. Now, Simu Liu uh, also had some interesting things to say about this. But anyway, this comes to us from The Wrap, who writes... This weekend, Marvel Studios finished filming on Shang-Chi and the Legend of the Ten Rings. And Shang-Chi himself, Simu Liu, who also stars in uh, Kim's Convenience, which is like one of the best shows on television right now, uh, thinks that some big things are in store for the Marvel Cinematic Universe's first film with an all-Asian cast. For all those who hated us because of the color of our skin or been made to feel less than because of it, no more wrote Lou on Facebook on a Facebook post on Saturday. This is our movie and it will be impossible for Hollywood to ignore us after this big words coming from him, but exciting words. Nonetheless, there's a couple of interesting things here to take into consideration and to ponder and think about here. Number one is just the fact that they were able to finish the movie, which is great. This is a film, Rob, I know you in particular have been very excited about seeing. This is a character you really, really like. It is also a big deal that, you know, listen, Asian representation in film has been minimal. And I remember when Crazy Rich Asians came out, it not only was a delightfully wonderful, entertaining movie, it put Hollywood on notice that, guess what? You can put out, because Rob, the mentality for a long time, and I, I fault nobody doing what they think is good business, all right? I, I don't fault anybody for doing what they consider to be the right business moves. But the prevailing thought in Hollywood was you cannot do movies with Asian leads and make money. That was kind of the prevailing thought. It wasn't a racist thing. It was just that we just think business-wise that's what the equation is and we're going to do what's best for business. But then along came Crazy Rich Asians. And was this little small budget comedy, blew things away. And I think that opened up a lot of eyes and a lot of doors. And now we're going to see this coming out. How good or bad this movie is going to be, Rob, will be completely irrelevant as to the ethnicities of the characters playing in it. Um, but it's it's good to see nonetheless. So anyway, 
I love hearing that this thing was able to wrap. It's good to hear any production in the midst of the COVID pandemic and everything, not only be able to fire back up, but actually complete their work and do what they were doing. Now we just wait for this thing to come. Rob, you heard about this. What are your first impressions? Well, first of all, you know, Moon Knight was written by Doug Mensch and Doug Mensch wrote Shang-Chi first and Doug Mensch and Paul Gulacy as the artist. I loved their run on this comic book. I love Shang-Chi. I love the character. It's really interesting because back in the 70s when Marvel was licensing literary characters like Conan, they licensed Fu Manchu and Fu Manchu is Shang-Chi's father. They've changed that subsequently because they don't have the rights anymore. But one of my favorite actors ever, my man Tony Leung, who was in Wong Kar Wai's In the Mood for Love. He was in uh, John Woo's Hard Boiled. He's one of my favorite actors is in this movie. And for somebody who grew up watching Asian cinema, I mean, I've never understood this idea that, I mean, I get it. In the West, perhaps there has not been the representation there should be, but I love Asian cinema and I cannot wait to see this movie. I think this movie is going to kick all kinds of unholy ass. I think Tony Leung is going to be amazing, wearing amazing costumes. And I think Shang-Chi himself, you know what? Four words, John, Shang-Chi hot toy right up there on my (laughs) shelf. I mean, I'm telling you, I, 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 I cannot wait to see this movie. I am so excited. I mean, you know, Shang-Chi's been in the Avengers too. (laughs) I mean, this, this, I just, I can't, we are getting such, I mean, for those people, the MCU to me is just the gift that keeps on giving, you know, is it the most transcendent thing in the world? No, but it brings me such joy. I love the MCU. I love that they're adding these characters. You know, it's great that we're going to have this kind of diversity. And like he was saying, what what Black Panther did for super for 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 black characters and superhero films, this will do for mm. for Asian characters as well. And Tony Leung. By the way, do you know that uh, uh, a Hong Kong company is making a Tony Leung action figure from Lust Caution that comes with a chair? Two two things I'm not surprised by. Number one, I'm not surprised that that's true. Number two, I'm not surprised that you know that. Like, not in the least. No surprise here at all. Again, of course, the key thing there is it's going to have a chair. That's, that's the main I, thing. You know, and I can't find where to order it. I've just seen pictures. They've been taunting me online. Anyway, guys, the question for you is... What do you think about this? We're now actually seeing not just projects getting going and we are seeing projects wrapping up production. Marvel's taking a big step with their Shang-Chi movie. What do you guys think about that? Jump down to the comments section below and let us know your thoughts. All right, guys. With that down, let's now move into our fourth and final main topic today. And our fourth and final main topic today gets submitted to us by Cinematic Art 88 who writes... Hi. So over the past few days, many news outlets have been saying that Apple TV Plus and Netflix have been trying to buy the rights to stream Bond 25, No Time to Die, with some even saying that they are offering up to $600 million. My question is, do you believe this is true? And if it is, are numbers like these going to push No Time to Die out or onto our TV screens? Love the show. All right. Thanks a lot for sending that in, man. And listen. There, and whenever a news story breaks, there's always some misunderstanding or misinformation going around. And, and the same is true here. There's a few things you've probably seen in headlines. Number one, you probably saw that MGM is shopping around no time to die. That is not true. Second thing, 
like Cinematic just said, that Apple TV Plus and Netflix were offering up to $600 million. That is also not true. What is the truth is actually a little bit somewhere in between. First of all, let's jump over and see what the folks over at Variety are writing. Apple, Netflix, and other streaming services explored the possibility of acquiring No Time to Die. They were the ones who initiated this. It wasn't MGM going out and trying to find a deal for No Time to Die. Apple and Netflix and other streaming services approached MGM. Uh, The upcoming James Bond movie that was originally slated to debut last April. However, the MGM person said this, we do not comment on rumors. The film is not for sale. The film's release has been postponed until April of 2021 in order to preserve the theatrical experience for moviegoers, an MGM spokesperson told Variety. The studio was said to be looking for a deal for roughly $600 million. So it's not that Netflix and Apple TV came in offering $600 million. It's that they came to MGM and said, hey, we want to buy No Time to Die. And Netflix or and MGM said, okay, conversation starts at $600 million. To which Apple and Netflix went, oh, and slowly backed out of the room like Homer Simpson disappearing into the bushes. A price tag that was deemed too rich for two of the free spending streaming services. So there you have it. So basically breaking this down again, MGM, who is reportedly Rob said to have already lost between 30 and $50 million because of the delays. Like going to your point, Rob, just sitting on a film actually costs you money. So a lot of the streaming services approached him and said, Hey, uh, what's it going to take to put things in? You know, we just put two, we, Apple says we just put up 200 million for a new Marty Scorsese movie. Huh? Ah, uh, what, what are you thinking, MGM? How much would you like? Okay. Conversation starts at $600 million. Oh. And like like the Russian mobster says when he finds out it's John Wick that they wrecked his car. Oh. <laughs> and they quietly backed away. There's a couple of really interesting things here, though, Rob. Interesting thing number one is this. We are living in an era right now where this even happened. Like pre-COVID, pre-COVID, no, none of these streaming places are going to be dumb enough to approach like one of the studios about a major tentpole blockbuster film like a James Bond franchise and think they even have a shot. But guess what? We live in an era right now where they know they did have a shot. I mean, maybe they were further apart than they thought they would be. But pre-COVID, this is something that never even would have been dreamed of. But the reality is we live in a time right now where it is something you can dream about. If you're a Netflix acquisition executive, you can dream about in today, the way things are today in this context, you can dream about approaching an MGM saying, hey, can we talk about it? Your next James Bond film. They would have been laughed out of the room nine months ago, Rob, laughed out of the room, but they're not getting laughed out of the room anymore. So that tells us one thing. Another thing I think we learned from this is what we've been talking about all the time. These movie studios know the reason they probably threw out the $600 million number and that's where the conversation has to start is because that's the type of money we're looking at making if we put this thing in theaters. Mm -hmm. We're not going to give it to you for $300 million and just be happy that we covered cost. That's not what we're going to do with our major movie. We're not going to do that. You want to talk to us about money, it's going to have to start around the dollar figure of where we think we can begin to expect the type of financial windfall we're going to get if we put this thing out in theaters. So unless you're willing to start there, 
But again, Rob, I still think it's a sign of the changing times that this actually became a possibility that this could happen. And I don't think Apple TV Plus was crazy to approach MGM. And I don't think Netflix was crazy to approach MGM. Nine months ago, it would have been crazy. But today, it's not. I'm not surprised by MGM's response. But again, we live in that age where these streamers can approach these studios and ask for movies of this caliber. Rob, you saw this news. What's your takeaway from this? What are the things and the principles here that are jumping out to you that you walk away with looking at this situation? Well, uh, there's there's a lot going on here uh, that I think needs to be – I think this is pointing – this is a signpost to the future. Now, just as an example, the highest grossing James Bond film in franchise history, uh, not, not according to adjusted dollars, was Skyfall. Skyfall is made according to Box Office Mojo. It made one billion one hundred eight uh, million uh, five hundred sixty one thousand and thirteen dollars. So, so one billion one hundred thousand one one billion one hundred million dollars. Now, the thing is, when you're dealing with box office grosses, remember, you know the studios aren't getting all of that money. They're getting about half of that money. You know, from from whatever. So because it got it goes to the theaters, the exhibitors, all of that. So if you think half of one billion, one hundred million, what is that? That's five hundred and fifty million dollars. And of that, you have to you have to defray the cost of the production of the film. Well, Skyfall, uh, I don't know the exact the production budget was two hundred million. OK, so. No Time to Die is $250 million. So if you got a $600 million payday, you wouldn't have to split that money with theater owners. The cost of the film is covered. So $250 million, you've got $350 million left. Universal's the international distributor. I guess MGM is domestic. Um, so what are you looking at? So ultimately, if they were to get $600 million, they could actually make more profit than they would get if the movie grossed $1 billion, $100 million theatrically worldwide. So $600 million was a pretty good number to get for the streaming rights for this movie worldwide. It would have been something that they could have been like, huh, no more marketing budget, don't have to distribute it, don't have to revenue share with theater owners. So I think it was a tough choice. And I, I'll tell you, with theaters now closing again in Italy and throughout the rest of Europe because of COVID uh, increases, and they expect this movie to come out in April, I think that this number could be revisited. It really depends. Does a Netflix or an Apple think a $600 million spend for them will generate enough subscriptions that in the long run it could be worth doing? I think from the studio's perspective, if they really thought about it, you're right on the edge. If somebody was going to plunk down 600 million, they might take it. Like an Apple and a Netflix might come back to them with that money and they might take it. But this is something that these tent poles have to consider because can they make this money? What if No Time to Die doesn't do a billion dollars at the global box office? What if it only does 800 million? This 600 million dollar number 
Might have been an attractive number they've passed up, but then again, that, but no that, that, that's the thing, right? They didn't pass it up, right? That's no the thing. They, I was say, no nobody offered the them six hundred million dollars. They said that's where the conversation has to start. If you yep. want to talk to us about getting it, so they did not pass up six hundred million dollars. No, I, uh, but that's the number that I think that that it it it's it's in the realm in our new world. I don't think we're going to see another two hundred fifty million dollar tentpole film made anytime soon. I really don't. But because they've got they've got a backlog of movies, not that weren't that expensive, but still were very expensive films. I could see something happening where the dam will break and somebody might might cough up that cash. They might. I, I, I can't see that ever. There are two things I take exception with. Number one, it, it, the commonly held refrain out there is that studios get roughly half. That is just not true. I've I have worked with AMC theaters. I have sat in the room with their with their exhibitor uh, executives. It really does really work out closer to one third. Still, but that when you're talking about a billion dollars, the difference between half and one third is significant. The other thing you got to keep in mind is MGM. They've they've already spent roughly a hundred million dollars on the marketing of this film because they thought they had two different release dates that they started spend, spending up. Yeah. So they already spend a lot of marketing money. To me, where this really falls apart is the number that MGM threw out there, which is, I believe, there. I really do believe them when they say that's our starting point. If you want to have discussions, it's got to start at six hundred million. It's th- there's a reason that is more than double what any streamer has paid for any single property before, and there's just no like Apple can buy and sell Disney ten times over. But they're not going to spend $600 million for one piece of content that they're going to put on their thing. That Netflix they're going to have to give back in a year. Yeah, that they were th- exactly. They're going to have to give back at some point. Netflix is not going to spend $600 or $500 or $400 million for one piece of content that you just so astutely pointed out that they're just going to have to give back at some point, whether it's in one year or two years or whatever, that they're not owning that property. That to me shows two things. Number one, we're in a world that these conversations can even exist now that we wouldn't have been nine months ago, but that the divide and the gulf between what can these streamers actually pay for a single piece of content and what would these studios be looking to get for it is still a rather significant gap because it's not like it's not like um, you know Netflix was offering two hundred million and MGM said no, you got to get up to two seventy five. It's not like they were close, like they were miles apart. Yeah. But but I but, but even still I never thought we'd live in the world where this conversation would be even happening and yet here we are. Yeah, I mean really it look it come the streaming the streaming services their economic models are all based on subscribers. Now the question would be, you know, Netflix paid 100 million dollars to run Friends for one more year. So the question would be like let's just say Apple Plus wanted to buy this. Okay, and they wanted to pay six hundred million dollars. What if they made it so, unlike Mulan, um, if you wanted to become a new subscriber and watch uh, No Time to Die, you had to guarantee a year's subscription in Apple Plus. Could they get enough subscribers with that to make the make it worthwhile? Like, let's say worthwhile would be thirty percent. You know, thirty percent more than six hundred million. So if they spent six hundred million, they would want to make well, let's just say nine hundred million or even a billion dollars. They would want a billion dollars in new subscriber money generated by this. 
could they make that work? I don't know. I mean, that's that's a tall order, but maybe they could. And if they could generate enough new subscribers that would bring them a billion dollars worth of, of revenue, then maybe it would be worth it for them. But yeah, it but depends. that's an impossible it's an impossible number because even just to get that six hundred million dollars, that means they would have to convince one hundred million new subscribers to sign up for a guaranteed full year for one piece of content. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's just or I should I should say ten million new subscribers to sign up yeah. for one it's, it's piece of million. content. Ten Is that million? Out- is that for, out of the realm of possibility? It is out of the realm of possibility for one piece of content. Because like with Friends, you mentioned they, the Netflix spent $100 million. Friends, you have how many seasons was that? Seven seasons? You're talking about about 140 pieces of content, 140 episodes, 140 pieces of content. Now, Bond to Friends is not an apples to apples comparison. I fully acknowledge that. It's not an apples to apples comparison. But yeah, the, the idea that one movie – will convince 10 million people to sign up for a guaranteed one-year commitment to a platform that, quite frankly, doesn't have a lot on it. It's got a couple of really good things. You know, uh, um, For All Mankind, Morning Show, it's got a couple of good things on it. But I I think that becomes... I mean, to quote Darth Helmet, it takes us into ludicrous speed. I, I, I just, I don't no, think that's. It, re- it, it, I agree with you. I, I agree with you. But, I, but I, what I think this is doing is, again, it is a signpost to the future. Mm. There, things are, you know, there, there are sea changes happening, and I, I keep looking at what are they going to do with this movie, John? We haven't really talked much about what happens if 2021 is wiped out because of COVID, in terms of box office. You know, again, they're closing the European theaters. They had opened those up. They're now closing them again. So everybody that pulled their movies off their release dates from now through the holidays looks pretty damn smart. But what if we don't get this under control? Well, I mean, yeah, but if we get into the what if scenarios, what if a a vaccine is made available in February? I mean, so there's a lot of we could play the what the, the what if thing. Look, I'll tell you this right now. What if? The pandemic wipes out 2021 as far as box office goes. Mm-hmm. Oh God, man, that's that's apocalypto. I mean, that's that's the end of the movie theaters. They can't survive. I mean, it changes everything. Also, However, the studios, the studios who oh, now have to pay back those interest payments on their movies. Yeah, and not making the money, do- the dollars that they were going to make before, and all this kind of stuff. I mean, a lot. Some of them will go under. Some there'll be other mergers that'll happen. It'll be. It'll be chaos. There's an equal, but then again, what if, what if movie theaters are open back up again in, let's say March or April, sure. right? And so what do we know? October, so November, December, January, February, March. So let's say six, five, six months from now, they're open back up and James Bond does come out and it does make $1.2 billion or it does make $900 million. And the next MCU film comes out and it makes $875 million. And then the next 10 pole film makes a billion dollars again. I mean, so we're in a position where it could go from everything to a mass extinction level event as far as the entertainment industry goes, or it could be all these changes that we saw. Because I'll tell you right now, Rob, if March, April come along and April 21st comes, James Bond opens and it makes $900 million, all the changes we saw during the COVID stuff are wiped off. 
they're 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 gone. What is more interesting is if James Bond does come out 2021 or uh, in April 2021 and it makes 500 million dollars. Well, look at 500 or 600. Then it's still like, where does that leave us? Because that's good, but it's not as good as it would have been pre COVID world. But it's not good for a movie that costs 250 million. Okay, yeah, so that's what I'm saying. So what if, do you look at that as, okay, that's a great starting point for these movies coming back? Do we look at, I mean, it's weird. It's But it's so many factors that we just can't predict yet, right? And so it's it's crazy. If the movie theaters aren't open again when we get into August or September of 2021, it's a doomsday scenario. If they're back up and running and they're making the money they were making pre-COVID, then everything's back to normal. But and then talking- there's a million stages in between. You're talking if movie theaters are open at full capacity, you know, well, and, I mean, and I mean, if there's a vaccine in February, or March, they very well could be back open at full capacity. That's come true, April, but there May. has never been a coronavirus vaccine ever. I the agree. Yeah, absolutely. And, I, and yeah. I, I think this this idea that we're going to have a vaccine for this, like, I hope we will. But it's it's wishful thinking. And I think in terms of. Of where, where, I mean, the scenarios that this, look, the studios are gaming this stuff out. They, they are way ahead of us in terms of, of what their thought yeah. process is. And I think what they're doing is they're, they're coming up against the inevitability of the future, meaning that streaming, I, I hate to say it because I love movie theaters, but I think this is just uh, accelerated what was eventually going to happen. It might've taken 20 or 30 years, maybe. But this has pushed up that timetable. I just don't see movie theaters coming back, not the way they used to be. But answer me this question. Let's let's look at – we looked at the theoretical situation of what if 2021 was wiped out off the board. We know right. what the result of that would be. Studios would be merging. Theaters will be closing. It, it'll be an apocalypse. Well, let me ask you about the other extreme situation. If the theaters are back open – to like 75 to 100% capacity and mm-hmm. a no time to die opens end of April, five, six months from now, and it makes $900 million. Where does that leave us? Like if, if that happens, what does that then tell us about where the state of things are? And if we were look at one extreme, let's look at the other as well. Because there are, like I said, there are a million different little stages in between this extreme and that extreme. It's not this or that. There's a million other little possibilities in between. But, you know, what... Let's say that happens. What does that do to the to the environment and to the landscape in the entertainment and movie world at that point? Well, if we go more back to normal, you know, I think that's a good thing. Uh, and that would be great. That would be great because I think this has changed, uh, irrevocably changed our, our, our society. And, you know, maybe it was something needed that we were needed to have happen. I, I don't know. But um, – you know, I think it, I think our society is not going to go back to normal, at least not that quickly. And um, certainly public gatherings, regardless, are going to be hampered for a long time to come. And I don't think movie theaters, what you're talking about is movie theaters working at full capacity. I don't see that happening for years. You know, unless we tamp down, we've proven, especially in America, that we do not have what it takes to uh, to stop this. People are not willing to man up and we didn't handle it the way we should have. And it's unfortunate because we could have and we didn't. So I don't see that that we're going to be able to stop this and go back to normal because we are simply unwilling to do what it takes. So 
I, I, my mic went out. I was really impressed uh, by the variety uh, available to people now. I could be Black Panther, Falcon, War Machine, and that's just the MCU. As a young kid, I never had a choice of heroes. I could be. It feels good. I mean, listen, one of the, the costuming options available to people today kids adults alike is way different than the costuming options that were available when i was a kid one of of course the big things that prompts that is the fact that we've got uh cosplay is so big and popular these days cosplay is a huge thing so that kind of works into it as well but yeah it is a great time if you enjoy costumes and stuff like that today is a great day to be alive for that wakanda forever all right next up wakanda also writes i got the black panther necklace and the captain america shield those are very popular ones i know you were all wondering so when i uh, come to your door you better have my candy ready but wear a mask of course and keep six feet apart on the sidewalk okay lol have a good one yeah you know it's funny rob me and ann were just talking the other day about the fact that um, we don't have to do anything for Halloween this year because where we live, you're not allowed to ha- go trick-or-treating, <laughs> no, right. which which <laughs> totally makes sense. I get it. Listen, I love Halloween, but I get it. I don't want your little super spreader, six-year-old Timmy, um, going from door to door, <laughs> picking up something at one door, and then me being the hundredth door that little Timmy visits that day. <laughs> I mean, I, I make, I get it. It makes sense. I understand. Uh, but it, it, it will. It does. It is unfortunate because Rob. One of the things I learned in L.A. was that man, you go down to Hollywood Boulevard during Halloween. It is amazing. In Hollywood. I mean, they people get all dressed up and take to the streets and stuff like that. And it's a really fun thing. And a lot of things are going to be missing out on. Uh, but listen, I've I've lived in either like tucked away houses or whatever. I, I tend to live off street. So I don't really get kids coming to my door for Halloween anyway. But is this throwing uh, wrenches in your plans? Do you guys usually do something to meet the trick or treaters at your door? We you know, we don't get really trick or treaters here. Uh, we, I used to, in other places I lived, which was a great excuse to buy all the Halloween candy I wanted, um, and know <laughs> that I would only get a few. So there'd be a lot left over, but no, I, I, I think, yeah, I mean, parties and, and the things that I would usually go do are just, they're just not happening this year. And, um, it's kind of unfortunate because, you know, it, it's very funny how, how, as I've gotten older, Halloween has become much more acceptable for adults to celebrate, you know, when I was in my 20s, it's like people in middle age are not getting excited about Halloween unless they have kids. Well, not that's not true in L.A. <laughs> Maybe it's because we have the movie business. It's like Halloween's a big deal here. And uh, it doesn't matter how old you are. You can dress up and go to parties and no one bats an eye. So it is it's a fun. I mean, we have so many fun events. The Haunted Hayride, the Horror Nights at Universal. Uh, Disneyland when they would deck everything out for Nightmare Before Christmas, not Scary Farm. I mean, there's so many things in L.A. that are fun at Halloween and they're all not happening. And it's it's really put a damper on the whole on the whole um, on the whole season, man. All right, let's uh, move on here. Next up, we got uh, Shekel Money who writes, one of two, fun fact, in both the Borat movies, when Borat talks to Azamat or to his daughter, he actually speaks in Hebrew. I did not know that. I Is that true? Really? I have no idea about that. Well, I have no idea what language the others are talking. In the first movie, he just says a lot of nothing, and it's really uh, in the real context. While in the second movie, he do say uh, what you think he would say and what is written with English subtitles. I had no idea about that. 
I had no idea. I, I mean, for, for, I, I should clarify. I don't know if that's true or not, but if it is true, I had no idea. Rob, did you even have a chance to see uh, the second oh. Borat movie yet? Yes, I did. <laughs> Elizabeth <laughs> and I watched it and uh, I thought it was hilarious. I mean, Elizabeth had to like walk out of the room. She was so, she was so, <laughs> it was, I, I really loved it. I thought again, it was incredibly ballsy and you know, it actually was, there was some elements of it that were kind of sweet, you know, like the guys that took him in the QAnon believers that let him stay at their house. And that actually went with him to that event. I mean, remember when that event was shot and it was in the news that Sasha Baron Cohen had dressed up and sung a song. Yeah. There was no indication that that was a Borat thing that it, it, it was, I remember reading the news reports and it was just, he dressed up as like some, you know, Hick singer. (laughs) <laughs> and was making fun of this. I loved seeing that. I was like, oh, my God, this is a real – they really did this. But I really – I like the movie a lot. Yeah, I, I, I didn't – I didn't quite enjoy it as much as like the first one, no. but I thought it was a win. I I, I thought yeah, it was I a big too. one. I enjoyed it a lot. I couldn't believe he did half the things he did in that movie. Uh, amazing. Uh, anyway, guys, if you haven't seen it, it's on Amazon now. Go and check it out. All right. Next up, University Film Review writes, hey, John, I have a fun question for you. If you had to pick to see one of these movies tomorrow, another a year from now, and then never see one, uh, what would you choose? Uh, uh, Trevorrow's Episode Nine, Affleck directing a solo Batman, and Man of Steel 2. Um, Affleck directing okay i'll say this man of steel 2 i would watch tomorrow affleck directing a solo batman film if you had specified affleck directing and starring in a solo batman film i might have put that first and then never see his uh, travaux episode 9 i thought the script was good but i wouldn't have been nearly as excited to watch that as affleck's batman or man of steel 2 so i gotta put those ones at the head of the line thanks for sending that in man but yeah I, i i mean both obviously ben affleck directing a batman movie and a man of steel 2 are two things that i salivate for so We'll see what happens there. All right. Orange hand writes. So what's the difference between the old Republic and the high Republic? Uh, is it referring to the times before and after the destruction of the Sith when Darth Bane established the rule of two? Not necessarily because like a lot of stuff that was understood before is no longer canon. So what specific parts of canon are there? Why is one era called the old Republic and one the high Republic? Don't know yet. I, I really don't know. I think we will probably get a better picture of that once the High Republic era uh, material starts coming out. They'll probably clarify what that is. Like, what's the difference between AD and BC, right? Something like that. Rob, have you heard anything about what is the distinction between other than obvious time? But is, if there's any defining, are they saying there's any defining events that separate uh, I, Old Republic and High? I no. I mean, I don't know. I'm I'm very curious. Uh, I, I I just there's a lot of time in between the eras, so I don't know. I don't know what they're going to do, but I'm curious. I mean, it looks I'm curious cool. too. Um, Andre writes, "Hey gang, first time tipper, long time viewer. Thanks for sending one in, Andre. Appreciate that. I hate spiders. So does Aaron. Uh, so I always avoided John Goodman's arachnophobia, despite some curiosity about it. Do you recommend it as a Halloween scare, or have I been missing?" Uh, little in your opinion thanks I'm going to be honest with you I, I've never thought it's all that good of a movie to be frank with you I've, I've never thought arachnophobia was all that good I have no particular fear of spiders Erin um, Cummings watched I took her to see Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse and there's a scene where a cartoon spider falls a little cartoon spider for a second all bright colors and everything and I thought she was going to tear my arm off it was crazy but I actually never I don't th- personally I don't think you're missing anything Rob are they missing anything by not watching arachnophobia 
you know, arachnophobia, you know, it's fun. I've never loved arachnophobia, but it's fun. You know, it's, 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 you gotta see it. How can you not? You gotta watch yeah. arachnophobia. <laughs> Unless you're scared of spiders, then you probably really shouldn't. No, then you really need to watch arachnophobia because it'll work <laughs> even better. If you don't like spiders, it's your movie, man. Come on. All right. Next up, uh, Carnell B writes regarding your comments on HD 4K and HDR. I love 4K. In my experience, if I had to choose between HD HDR content versus 4K, uh, no HDR. I find HDR content much more pleasing to the eye. 4K with HDR is just having my cake and eating too. love the show. Yeah. So what we were talking about the other day and Rob, you weren't here. So I said, look, 4K, depending, you can watch a lot of different tech videos that have spoken about this, but 4K, depending on how far you sit, for, how big your TV is and how far from your TV you sit, most people don't even know the difference between good HD and 4K. Again, that's, it all also depends on the size of your TV and how the distance you sit from your TV. To me, um, and I have 4K TVs, don't get me wrong, but like, Rob, I said to me, the far more important thing, the thing that really does make a visual difference in the image of the movie to me in recent years has been high dynamic range. That oh, has yeah. been the more important thing to me. As a connoisseur of physical media and, and the viewing experience that you are, if you had to choose between you know good HD with HDR versus 4K with no HDR, which way do you lean? Well, look, you, yeah, if you're not going to avail yourself of, of HDR and preferably Dolby Vision, because Dolby Vision is the best. I mean, HDR right. 10 plus and Dolby Vision, do, it really does make a difference. High dynamic range makes a big difference in the way you're going to see things. It's pretty spectacular. But, you know, that means you need a 4K TV that has Dolby Vision. You also have to have a 4K player that allows you to play out so you need – it's got to be Dolby Vision all the way through your system, um, but it's definitely worth it. But here's the thing, John. For me, the thing about 4K and the, where the true revelation lies is when you see movies that are photochemically originated, such as uh, things Die Hard, The Matrix movies, older films, Blade Runner. These are the films that benefit the most because when they go back and they scan the negative again, 2001 – these are these are not movies. A lot of the modern movies today are finished in 2K. So when you're looking at a 4K film, you're looking at an upscaled version. But when they go back and they do like Die Hard has never looked great on home video until that 4K disc. It was a revelation. So to go back and to see these new transfers done, true 4K transfers, it's amazing. Amazing. All right, let's move on here. Next up, Bobbert Ryer Murnett writes, uh, what would be the best possible bit of movie news you could ever receive? What would be one of the worst? Well, that's impossible to sit down here and talk about. But if today, the best possible movie news I think that would get me the most excited today would be what we were just talking about. Ben Affleck is going to star in and direct a solo Batman movie. I've been wanting that for years. And so that would probably be the best. The worst, I don't know. I mean, pick any one of a million things. Uh, MCU, Disney cancels the MCU or so. I I don't know. But to me, today would be Ben Affleck writing and directing and starring in 
a new solo Batman film. Rob, I have a feeling we might have already gotten yours today with Oscar Isaac being Moon Knight. <laughs> but what would you say would be like one piece of movie news that could hit today that would be the best thing to you? Well, for me, if I had a favorite director directing a favorite book, one of my favorite books ever is Donna Tartt's The Secret History. Now, The Goldfinch didn't do so well. But if I could hear that like David Fincher is directing Donna Tartt's The Secret History, I'd be like, okay. Uh, that's exciting to me. So whatever favorite, pick your favorite book and and pick your favorite director and put those two together. That's the kind of stuff that I really get excited about. All right. Next up, we've got Eddie R. who writes, hey, John, I have a theory about the Snyder Cut. I'd love to get your opinion on. The miniseries will be a sample pack of curious, unanswered storylines, allowing fan attention slash reactions to dictate which ones are greenlit HBO Max miniseries of their own. I, I, I don't think that's at all what they're doing here. Now, look, Rob, what we have seen obviously recently clearly shows that what we're going to be getting on HBO Max is not exactly the true original vision that Zack Snyder had. I mean, that much is clear. Uh, they're they're adding new stuff. They're, you've already reported that Jared Leto never shot anything for the original Justice League movie. Now they're going to have Jared Leto in it. So obviously it's not going to be a true, clear, the original vision of Zack Snyder. However, I still think it's going to be close to that. I still think it's going to be close to that. I don't think HBO Max came in and said, Zach, we're scrapping your whole original vision, and we just really want to use the name Snyder Cut to create a little sample pack to let us do some audience taste testing to see what we want to do in the future. I right. think that's a little bit way too much of a departure. So while this is not going to truly be Zach's original vision or anything, I think it's going to be close. I think it's going to be close with some new ideas that maybe Snyder has had and what have you, but I, I don't think it's going that far. Rob, how would you address that? Yeah, I mean, I I don't know. I, obviously, I think that we're going to get something. I mean, now that they've unleashed the, the Kraken and allowed him to reshoot things, um, who knows what we're going to get? And I don't think it was ever a plan to have Jared Leto's Joker in, in those films. But it makes sense because they're all supposed to exist in the same universe as David Ayer's Suicide Squad. So I, I think we're going to get something that is sort of new. We're going to get we're going to get an extrapolation because what 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 he's getting to do is go back to his original vision, see what works and what doesn't and make changes accordingly. So one of the things that makes me excited about this is you know me, I know you like Justice League a lot more than I did, but I was crushed by that movie. And so anything he does to me, and I we both like Zack Snyder, so I'm if he brings the same mythic feel to Man of that he brought to Man of Steel and the extended the ultimate edition of Batman v Superman, I think we're gonna get something really interesting. But I think it's gonna be something new. That it, it isn't even a Snyder cut. It's a new it's a new Snyder cut. It's a reinterpretation of what that Snyder cut was because he's been afforded the opportunity to do so. So I don't I'm I I'm excited for it. I'm actually really excited for it. But All I right, don't let's move. Yeah. All right, let's move on here. Certified Lover Boy writes, as of now, Freaky, Let Him Go, and Crudes 2 are slated to come out in theaters next month. Why do you think they're being released now? Do you think it is a mistake to release them? And do you think any of these films will get delayed? Thanks. Well, I mean, look, anything can get delayed. Absolutely, that's a, that's a possibility. However, one very feasible strategy could be this. You put them out in theaters, and then three months later, after the theatrical window's done, you put it out on home video. Rob, you know this, a lot of independent filmmakers um, have 
a lot of times they put out their movies in some kind of theatrical run to get that. Uh, what's the word I'm looking for to get that uh, cachet that this was a theatrically released movie and it had a marketing campaign. And so when three months later, three months pass, and it's like, now this is coming out on video. It seems to a lot of people, this was a real movie. This was in theaters, blah, blah, blah. And we've seen sometimes distributors give limited theatrical runs to some movies that they knew would never going to make any money in the theaters, but they do it. So when they do put it out on video and on home video, it has a bigger presence and it has more cachet going for it at that point. That could be the strategy with movies like freaky, which let's face it was never going to make $300 million in the box office ever. No. Anyway, it does look fun though. That it, movie it, looks it's fun. It's gotten good reviews. People it's it, yeah. I'm looking for that crudes too. look. I didn't even like the first crudes, but even I got to say the crudes too looks kind of fun too. And what have you? So um, I, honestly do think they'll probably just go ahead and release because I think the point of their release is just to bolster their video release in a few months. I don't know, Rob, what do you think the strategy is for these uh, movies that they're looking at? I, I feel the same way that you do. I mean, obviously the, the, it, it's not like anything they've been putting in the theaters over the last couple months has burned up the box office charts. So they know that, you know, maybe tis the season for a movie like freaky to come out and people want something, some, that kind of fair. But like you said, I mean, these films that have limited budgets, they are coming out theatrically on their on their uh, step. It's a stepping stone to going on to a streaming service. But, you know, maybe it'll catch on. It's, at some point, they're hoping that one weekend people are just going to decide to go to the movies again. But when you're looking at covid cases rising in the United States and we were the same amount of cases back in July we had over the weekend, it's it's a little hard to want to go into public spaces again. So. All right. Let's move on here. Big Ed writes, Hey, John and Rob, with Snyder Cut going through a lot of reshoots and story being changed, don't you think Snyder is trying to cram in his whole vision for the DCU just in case he doesn't get a chance to work on a DCU film again? Thanks for bring on the filthy. No, I don't think so. Look, you got to remember, when back before Zack Snyder departed Justice League, he had finished shooting his film. And he had an edit and he sat down and showed it to the WB execs. And that thing clocked in close to four hours, which is what this is going to be. Mm -hmm. So, uh, yeah, he's doing some reshooting. They have a lot of visual effects work to do. They have a lot of post-production to do. And, yes, it clear it is clear they're going to add in some new things that he didn't originally. But is he taking out two hours of his previous cut to put in two brand new hours? I don't think so. I think we're talking about minor changes, small, small changes. Like for instance, even the Jared Leto stuff is Joker. I don't expect we're going to see Jared Leto in 30 minutes of this movie. You know what I mean? So it's, it's, if it was, look, if he had originally shot a two hour justice league, well then, yeah, now he's shooting two hours more stuff, but it was already close to four hours before. And yes, he's adding some new things, but I don't think it's going to be a massive departure. It'll be different from what his original vision was going to be, but I do not see it as a massive departure. Rob, how would you uh, answer that? I agree with you. I think what he's doing is, it, look, he still has to work with what he shot. I don't think he's going back and completely reconceptualizing something from the ground up. But, you know, whenever a filmmaker finishes something, there's always that. I wonder if we could have done this or what if we would go do that? And I think all of those what ifs he's being able he's being afforded the opportunity because with this longer running time to just make the story more fulfilling. And I think that's going to be interesting to see how that works. 
All right. I mean, um, you know, we we know, by the way, I think with Jared Leto's, Leto's Joker, we know that Robin was killed. And maybe we're going to see that now. You know, there, so, there's a part of me that doesn't want to because that is well, such a departure from what the narrative of the movie is. I know. And I hope they don't get too sidetracked. I mean, I'm excited because, you know, I'm one of the few people that actually likes Jared Leto's Joker. So I'm excited. I just don't want to see them get too sidetracked from what the story is just yeah. so they can do a little too big of a detour. But I don't know. We'll see. But Mary, Jer- maybe Jared Leto's literally got one scene and they're just going to have that as a quick Batman flashback or something. Mm-hmm. Who knows? All right. Uh, Wakanda Forever writes, the eagle flies off in the sunset. A legend. People had their doubts talking uh, talking about Habib uh, Nurmagomedov. Uh, the lead up to the fight, the way in, but he pulled it out. I was surprised he retired, but not shocked. Undefeated pound for pound champion. Do you have a favorite uh, Habib fight or moment? Well, yeah, my favorite. My favorite Habib fight was when he he just kicked Conor McGregor's ass and made him tap and made him quit. Um, That was my favorite uh, Habib moment was that. But like every fight you watch him fight, he just dominates and smashes and people look like they're drowning when they're when they fight. They just don't want to do. And if you want to hear some high praise, go watch the interviews of people who fought him after they fought him. And it's like, it's just like nothing they ever experienced. It's really crazy. And yeah, I'm really sad to see him retire. Dan Ketchum writes, I was just watching a hilarious clip of how soaps are handling the COVID crisis. The guys are making out with mannequins serving as stand-ins for the woman in the scene. And they're all there. And they are so obviously dummies. Oh, my love. You're so cold and rigid. Is that real? Is that really what's happening? <laughs> I, I I have heard nothing of this. Is this actually what they're really doing? I've heard nothing. Or is that the, some kind of gag they're doing? <laughs> I don't know. I, I, I mean, that's kind of crazy if they're doing it, but I guess they understand everybody will just go along with it if that's what they're doing. That's funny if that's true, Dan. Thanks for sharing that, man. All right. Uh, Jared Oberfeld writes, according to my calculations, you should be reading this message 35 years to the day that Marty McFly traveled through time. Any thoughts on the legacy of Back to the Future trilogy? Roads, where we're going, we don't need roads. It's funny you mentioned that because just prior to starting the show, Robbie, you were just telling me you just picked up your 4K version of the trilogy. I certainly did uh the transfers um, are spectacular yeah they look I'll, great I, I listen i'll be honest with you to me when i think of back to the future i actually don't think of it in terms of it as a trilogy uh, because i i to me it's the first film like uh, to me back to the future that's the the all-time classic that's the movie that i always remember and think about i don't really think of it in terms of a trilogy to be honest with you but that first film the fact that you literally have like kids in high school today that have seen and love that movie i mean that movie's like what is it 35 years old now 35 years old it came out in 1985 it is absolutely crazy rob what are your thoughts on the legacy of back to the future as somebody who just picked up the 4k discs well, I first of all, I think the first film is one of the most perfect, from a screenwriting standpoint, one of the most perfect films ever made. I, it's just the script is tight as a drum. Everything that's set up is paid off. It's so much fun to watch. The storyline is great. I, you know, the idea of the the incestual, the incest angle, and, and Marty McFly is fighting against his mother. It's got, it's a little even, you know, it's edgy, but it's just a wonderful, delightful, near perfect film. Now, I understand that I think I've never been a fan of Back to the Future 3, 
But I did like – I thought Back to the Future Part 2 is pretty clever and ingenious in terms of the machina- the plot machinations. But it doesn't exist outside of Back to the Future 1. You know, Back to the Future 2, it couldn't couldn't even exist. So it's it's an interesting exercise and I enjoy watching it. It's fun, but I don't think it's particularly great. Not like the first one is. And then Back to the Future 3, again, the Western milieu was fun, but – it's not particularly a great movie, but Back to the Future, the first Back to the Future's perfection. Mwah. Love that film. All right, let's move on here. Caleb writes, some of my guilty pleasure movies, Transformers 2 and 3, Grown Ups. Hey, that's the definition of guilty pleasure movies, man. You, the movies you acknowledge nobody else likes, but you do. And that's the definition of a guilty pleasure movie. Uh, Grown Ups, Death Race 2008, Geostorm, Sicario 2. Yeah, I didn't like Sicario 2 at all. Oceans 12 and 13. I like those too. Uh, Jack, and, Jack and Jill, Daddy's Home 2, White House Down, Den of Thieves. Den of Thieves had a lot of promise. I thought it didn't live up to its promise, but I thought Den of Thieves had a lot of promise. Uh, thoughts on these? Those are my thoughts. Out of any of those... Denethys really had a lot of potential uh, with Gerard Butler. That one had a lot of potential. Didn't quite live up. I and, and Oceans twelve and thirteen. I like the Oceans twelve and thirteen movies. A lot of these I absolutely hate, though. Uh, and, and Rob, any of those lists that stand out to you as being ones that you actually like? Uh, uh to be honest, I kind of like Death Race. Oh, okay. You know, I, actually, I, I, I know a couple of people like that Death Race movie. I mean, it's you know, it's 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 given a. It, there's a lot of sequels. It's not great, but I, and and I, I can I even Den of Thieves is not bad, and I have to say, you know, I like Transformers three, and White House Down was fun. <laughs> it was it was no Olympus has fallen. <laughs> yeah, like Olympus has fallen was great. I didn't like White House Down. Um, it's, it's, I mean, there are definitely guilty pleasures. I guess. I mean. You know, the thing about White House Down is as goofy as it is, it was well made. I, you know, I enjoyed it as an afternoon time waster. (laughs) All right. Let's take one more with Rob still here. And that'll come to us from Ahmed Zed, who writes, hey, John and Rob, I just watched Birds of Prey. Struggled to watch it. Yeah, I did. That's the first DCEU film I didn't like. I I did not like Birds of Prey. Uh, But now up to date in the DCEU. Why do I get the feeling that Warner Brothers slash DC have no idea what they're doing, especially compared to Marvel? Why is this like seven years later and no Man of Steel 2? How? Well, look, the first thing, look, you know me. I am, other than anybody with the last name Snyder, I am the world's biggest proponent of Man of Steel. Like nobody will defend Man of Steel like I will. To me, it is the most underrated masterpiece of the comic book genre of all time. I love this film, but that doesn't change the fact that a lot of people hated it. And while it did not terrible at the box office, it did not do what they thought it would do at the box office. And a lot of critics and a lot of the audience hated it. And so when you go, how come there's no Man of Steel 2? And believe me, I'm the one doing that most of the time. How come there's no Man of Steel 2? Well, because they did the first one, it didn't. It underperformed what they thought it was going to do, and a lot of people hated it. That's why. So it's not the craziest thing in the world that they haven't made a Man of Steel 2. Even though I'm the biggest defender in the world of the original film, it's not crazy that they haven't done that. Rob, I mean, early, in the early days, it seemed like, that was the case that DC was the one that just didn't have a plan really. And Marvel was the one with the plan. I would argue 
that since the days that Walter Hamada took over, you've started to see their strategy, right? They decided, look, Walter Hamada said early and a lot of people didn't like it, but it's worked. He said, our new strategy is going to be for at least a time, we're going to focus on the individual films. Mm-hmm. We're going to make good individual films. We want to change the perception. We want, when people hear a new DC movie coming, their th- first thought isn't a negative thought, but their first thought becomes a positive thought. And we want to focus. And what have we got? We got Aquaman. We got Joker. We got Shazam. Right? So they said, we're going to focus more on that and reestablish our identity. We're going to reestablish our relationship with the audience to create positive thoughts that come to mind when you think of our brand. And I would argue that plan has been working because now, you know, a new DC movie to be coming out. I'm always excited, but a lot of times I'm also a little bit, Oh, but is it going to be okay? Now I think of a DC movie, not only I'm excited, but I believe it's going to be good because they've kind of been laying that groundwork. Now it's not the big grand interconnected cinematic universe like Marvel has done, but you don't have to do it that way. And I believe they will build back up to that at some point, but I believe DC under Walter Hamada have clearly shown they have a strategy. Uh, Again, the James Gunn thing saying they, oh yeah, kill or don't kill Harley Quinn. That's a little concerning to me, but overall, I think they have shown they have a strategy and the strategy has been working. Rob, how would you respond to what Ahmed is saying here? Well, I, I look after watching birds of prey, I was like, what is this? To me, Birds of Prey was the last vestige of the unplanned DC <laughs> universe. And, and now, I mean, Margot Robbie wanted to do it. It was kind of a vanity project for her. And, and okay, we'll do that. We need you back to come for James Gunn's Suicide Squad. But I think, I think they have – I think their strategy now is one of not necessarily universe building, but like we've talked about, they want to make sure the standalone movies are the best they can be. And if somebody makes an Aquaman movie that makes a billion dollars like James Wan did, great. And and then they can make another Aquaman movie. Are they really necessarily concerned with how it's going to fit with their other films? I don't think so. I think they want to make them as good as they can be. And now they're going to introduce the idea of the multiverse. So it's built in. It's baked into that their their concept of what they want to do that not everything has to have perfect continuity. And I think that in itself is a great strategy, getting these different kinds of movies where each individual movie is made the best it can be, and they'll figure out how it fits into the universe later. I think that's great. I think that's the way they should do it. That way they don't have to worry about mixing and matching and fitting in with someone else's vision, because that way we'll get, I'm more interested in getting the best. Like, can you imagine if, if Todd Phillips Joker movie had to be concerned with anything else? No. The fact that it was concerned with itself gave us the Joker that we got. And if they had to caress it into some other universe, it wouldn't have been as good. So I like what they're doing. Yeah. So do I, now I said that was gonna be the last one, but I just took, took a peek at this. We got to ask with Rob still here for this one. Caleb writes, how about that Sunday night football game? One hell of a ride, but in the end, my cards triumphed over Rob Seahawks. Never thought I'd be able to say that. Hashtag go cards. I'll tell you what, though, Rob. Here's the thing. If your team's going to lose, you want them to lose 
at the last minute. You want them to lose in, in a game that they were right in it and could have won. Like, you don't want them to lose the way my New England Patriots have been losing because they went out and got the wrong quarterback where they're getting blown out and getting embarrassed. You don't want that. If your team's going to no. lose, they went down fighting and in a competitive game that they easily could have won and you could have won next week. So, hey, it's their first loss. But I know you weren't feeling too good about that. About that I, I, was, I wasn't game. feeling too good about our defense. You know, I, I think that game. I was honestly, lost. I haven't felt good about your defense most of the year. I mean, Russell is really just overpowering most people at this point. <laughs> yes, and uh, it's it, it. That was a game that was lost on our because of our defense. We didn't, like I said before, we didn't touch their quarterback the whole game, and that wasn't cool. And that's why well, we Rob, lost. Rob, you guys are still like in the, one of the top teams in the NFL. You'll be fine. And in the meantime, Rob, thanks for being with us here today. I know you got things you got to run into. But in the meantime, where can people follow you and your adventures online? Well, you can find me on Instagram at Robert Meyer Burnett. Find me on Twitter at Burnett RM or find me on my own YouTube channel, uh, The Burnett Work, where we're still running our film festival until December. You can enter until December 1st, the first annual Intergalactic Imagination Connoisseurs Film Festival. Make a movie. John said it in one of his talks on walks that you should make a movie and send it to me. All right, Rob, thanks for being here, man. And we will talk to you again tomorrow, my friend. Have a good one. All right, I'll see you later. Take it easy, dude. All right, guys, that is the great Mr. Robert Meyer Burnett. Now we're going to keep on going. We still have some time to take some more of your questions. So let's jump on over and keep doing that right now. We're going to continue on here with Russell Amador, who writes, Hey, John, don't look now. But the week we've all been waiting for is finally upon us. Season two of Mandalorian is here and the excitement on on his, you probably mean this, uh, all sorts of new levels is a year of minimal new material. This is what we need right now. This is the way. Yep. This Friday, late Thursday night, however you want to define it, this Friday, Mandalorian season two debuts. Very excited. Um, I haven't been. It's been a bit. You know, actually, you know, I shouldn't say that because, you know, despite all the crap, we've gotten some good television. We got uh, Umbrella Academy. We got Doom Patrol. We got, um, oh, just watched the, you know, finished watching this season of The Boys. I mean, we've been getting some really good stuff. But yes, Mandalorian. Mouth is watering. All excited. Cannot wait, Russell. Cannot wait. All right. Next up, we got Nate Dog who writes, my favorite forgotten soundtrack masterpiece are Road to Perdition. It's a very good soundtrack. Uh, Thomas Newman, um, La Chocola, Rachel Portman, The Piano, Michael uh, Nyman, Memoirs of a Geisha, John Williams, The Mission, Eno uh, Morricone, The Legend of the Fall, James Horner. What about you? I Listen, I quite frankly don't think a lot about soundtracks. I really don't. I know when I'm watching a film that I'm hearing a great one, but I don't really think look the, the job of a great soundtrack is also the, is quite often the job of really good visual effects. Sometimes the job of visual effects is to be so good. You don't even notice them, you know, and sometimes the job of the score is to so become a part of the scene that it's not something you're really paying attention to. And I've got friends who just live and die by soundtracks. I'm not one of those people, to be frank with you, to be honest. I, I, I'm not one of those people. It's not that I don't appreciate them. It's just that's not where my focus normally has been in those things. So I'm not the one to give you the, those sorts of lists. But those are definitely some great ones that you just listed. Absolutely. Thanks for putting that up there, Nate Dog. All right, next up, Johnny writes, 
Hey gang, first off, congrats on the Baltimore Comic-Con panel. Thank you so much. It was a lot of fun. I did, I did. They did a panel on me and, and my movie, uh, movie trailers, a love story at the Baltimore Comic-Con yesterday, which was a lot of fun. Thank you so much. I was glued to the screen, really enjoyed watching it. Can't wait for your movie to come out. I hope it gets a distribution here in Israel. Second, UFC 254, what an event. And of course, stay safe. Yeah, 254 was fantastic. I, I won't talk about it anymore. I know I've talked about it a lot already, but it was a great card. Uh, even without the main event, it was a terrific, terrific card. That Robert Whitaker fight was fantastic. Uh, I just enjoyed it from top to bottom. Had a very, very good time. And thanks for watching the Comic-Con panel, man. I had a really good time doing it. Uh, all right. Yusuf writes, one of three. Can we just take a minute to appreciate the GOAT Khabib? Uh, everyone said that this was going to be his hardest fight ever, but I knew that he was going to run through and submit Justin uh, because he is that good. He really did change the game forever. Uh, and I know his dad is looking down at him from heaven with pride. I believe him when he said... Uh, that was it. So what more can you do than tip your hat to the man who be, who came into the toughest division ever and mauled everyone? What a legacy. And I'm so happy it belongs to a genuinely good guy. I wish he got to say goodbye under happier circumstances, but nevertheless, it was the most masterclass of performances and a perfect career. Well done, Habib. I hope you have a wonderful and peaceful retirement. I, I mean, you, you said beautifully, Yusuf, said absolutely beautifully. I, I couldn't say it better myself. He is a dude, is George St. Again, the great George St. Pierre, who I used to think was the GOAT, um, said it perfectly after the fight. And they interviewed George and he said, Khabib is invincible. He's absolutely invincible. And it's crazy. He is a once in a lifetime talent. But I'll tell you this I do believe he will fight again. I believe him when he said, I promised my mother I wouldn't fight anymore. My mother doesn't want me fighting anymore without my dad here. And so I promised my mother this was it. I believe him, but I also believe his mother may change her mind. And when she realizes all the good that he does and all kinds of stuff, I think she might come back. I still think that George St. Pierre, who is the biggest fan in the world of Khabib versus Khabib, whose hero is George St. Pierre. I still believe that fight will happen at some point in the next year or so. I still believe that fight will happen only because I believe Khabib's mother will change her mind and, and let him do it. But as long as she doesn't, you got to understand the type of guy that Nurmagomedov is. He promised his mother, he ain't going to fight again. That's it until she changes her mind. But I think she will change her mind at some point. All right. Schiffer writes, Hey, John and Rob, I just wanted to ask why the bad guys rarely win in movies. I know there are some examples of bad guys winning. It's rare. But why doesn't it happen more often? Just like in real life, the good guys don't win 95 out of 100 times. This always puzzles me. I don't know why you're puzzled by that because it's what the audiences want. Right? Audiences don't want movies where the bad guys win. Generally speaking, there are obviously exceptions, but generally speaking, you know, it's why why at the end of every romantic comedy does the guy and the girl end up together? That doesn't always happen in real life. True, but that is what the audiences want to walk out with a smile on their face, right? They want to walk out smiling. They want to walk out feeling good. That's part of the power of the narrative. That's part of the power of storytelling. It's really not confusing. I mean, it's really a very, very simple uh, premise and principle. Like, how much would we be talking about Lion King to this day if during that final fight between Scar and Simba, if Scar threw Simba off the cliff? 
and it ends with, you know, be prepared. I was prepared. You know, it ends with that and him and then killing all the uprising lionesses and blah, blah, blah. Like it's still the movie is still amazing. But are we still talking about it to this day the way that we do? I don't know. But that's just what audiences want to see. Audiences go to see the hero prevail. And they don't always do it. But for the most part, they do. But that's exactly why. All right. Good question, though, Schiffer. All right. Next up, Ryan Loner writes, I'm starting to suspect that whole thing with Rosario Dawson playing Ahsoka was never supposed to be leaked. And she's only going to show up at the very end of the season after a bunch of vague hints of someone who can find the Jedi, just like in Rebels. Well, look, I have told you guys she's going to be in one episode. And it's not going to be at the end. I, it's going to be either episode five or episode six. I was pretty convinced, and I can't say why, I was pretty sure it was episode five, but I've since heard from some people that it's actually episode six, but it's going to be in either episode five or episode six. I still think it's going to be five, but it could be six. Um, Most of the time, reports are not meant to be leaked. A lot of times, just somebody at the Hollywood Reporter or the Rap or Variety finds out through their sources, they confirm it through other independent sources, and then they run with it as a story. I I agree with you. I don't think that news was supposed to get out. They probably understood it would be hard to keep secret, but I I wouldn't be surprised if they thought, hey, wouldn't it be great if this doesn't get out? But it got out and whatever. It doesn't really change anything. But uh, but yeah, but it'll be fine. It'll be fine. I still really love that casting. All right. Wakanda Forever writes, I've always been a fight fan. Bruce Lee films, boxing, Hoist Gracie, UFC one. I even trained MMA and uh, Krav Maga. The Dora Milaje made me uh, the eagle scariest guy on the ground I've ever seen. Super fight won't happen now, but I have to ask Khabib or GSP best of all time. I, I, I It's got to be Khabib. Like I said, George... Even George, first of all, he's lost a fight or two. George lost a fight or two. And even in fights that he's won, he's been through some wars and had, you know, taken a lot of damage and had been at been in danger. Khabib has never been in trouble. Like never once has he even been in trouble. And the scariest thing, he is the greatest guy on the ground. But here's the thing. He was fighting Justin Gaethje and he was outstriking Justin Gaethje. He was fighting Conor McGregor, who's considered a top three or top four best strikers in MMA. And guess what? Guess which one got punched in the mouth and put on his ass? McGregor got punched in the mouth and put on his ass. He never knocked down Khabib. And he's one of the greatest strikers in the game. It's, it is insane. It's absolutely, absolutely insane. Um, I Look, I would... I still believe the super fight is going to happen. And I completely believe Khabib will win that fight. But I still want to see it. Um, but Khabib fighting a 32-year-old George St. Pierre or a 31-year-old George St. Pierre, that's a much more competitive fight. I don't know. But I still think the super fight will happen, and I think Khabib will win that fight. But uh, I still want to see it. All right. Oh, no, it's Josiah writes. Hey, John. Not every mo- not very movie related, but I'm proposing to my wonderful girlfriend this Halloween. That's amazing. Uh, I'm a bit nervous, but if all goes well, we will be going to see The Exorcist in theaters. I need your blessing, though. And Rob's, if he's there, sincerely, Josiah. Well, that's cool. Listen, let me tell you one thing, though. Maybe you're just nervous because that's a big thing to do. If you are at all nervous because you're not 100% sure that she's going to say yes, 
then don't propose yet. The proposal is not a time to find out if she wants to marry you. That right? That's that's not how you find out if she wants to marry you or not. You should already know if she wants to marry you before you propose. So maybe you're just saying you're nervous because that's a big, big thing you're doing. And if that's the case, that's all of us, man. But if you're nervous because you don't know how she's going to answer, then maybe now's not the right time to propose. But whatever. Hey, but hey, taking her out to see The Exorcist. Great job. As long as she doesn't hate horror movies. If she, hate horror, if she hates horror movies, take her to something else. Take her to something she wants to see. But either way, best of luck to you, Josiah. I hope it works out well for you, my man. All right. Uh, oh, my Josh writes. One or two. Hey, John, I just watched your doc on the Portland Film Festival site. Thank you so much. It was amazing. A thorough and insightful look into the trailer culture. Absolutely entertaining. I work as an in-house videographer, but I've started writing in hopes of breaking into filmmaking. I've been watching since the AMC Closet days, and I just want to say you've been such an inspiration the whole time. Your online dating uh, your online dating during COVID doc sounds, ideas sounds interesting. I've shot weddings, of course, who met through online dating. Make it. Thanks. So what for those of you who don't know what Josh is talking about, I put out a tweet on Twitter because I was talking to a friend of mine. And it's like, seriously, if I wasn't, if I simply had no free time right now, I would seriously look at making a documentary about trying to, if being single and trying to do online dating in the COVID era. Dating is hard enough. I hated dating, but dating is hard enough as it is. And online dating has its own challenges already. But in a pandemic, I've got a buddy of mine who is single and has been doing online dating. And he's been talking about some of the real new challenges presented in a pandemic. Like when you meet, do you like how long do you have to wait before you meet, which is always a question, but in pandemics even more, do you, and then how long do you wear the masks for around each other? And I mean, it's just, and I thought if I wasn't completely swamped, I would be making a documentary right now about dating online dating in an era of a pandemic. And so I put it out on Twitter. Say, hey, so if any other documentary filmmaker out there wants to take this idea and run with it, go do it. Cause I would love to see that doc. I would love to see that doc. So, hey, hey, Josh, maybe you've got your videographer. Maybe you got some time. Maybe you should go and make that damn thing, man. Go and make that movie. I want to see it. I want to see it. Anyway, thanks a lot for the kind words about my documentary. I appreciate that a lot, man. And uh, go make some great content, my dude. All right. Next up, Sam P writes, hey, John. I was wondering if you were as uh, big of a pig when I am when I go to the movies. Due to work, I don't uh, get to go very often and end up going all out buying popcorn, hot dog, and nachos. And here in the UK, it's not that expensive. Honestly, here's the funny thing about me. I never eat popcorn. I don't eat popcorn at home. I don't go out like when I go to a ball game or something, I don't order popcorn. Sometimes I get caramel corn. That's a little bit different, but I really don't eat popcorn. But for whatever reason, when I go to a movie theater and I walk in the doors, my I have a Pavlovian, you guys who are familiar with the Pavlov's dog thing, I have a Pavlovian response. The moment my mind registers that I'm walking into a movie theater, my mouth instantly begins to salivate. Um, because I'm in, I, my brain goes into an instant gear craving buttered popcorn. Like just craving it. And I never crave buttered popcorn. And so when I go to the movies, 
without fail, I always get the largest popcorn. Now, the reason I get the largest popcorn is because as an AMC Stubbs member, I get the free upgrade, right? So I get the free upgrade. So I get the largest popcorn and I soak it with butter. I've shown you my butter straw trick. I soak it with butter because to me, popcorn is a butter delivery device. But here's the funny thing. I will eat maybe the top 20% of the bag and then I'm done. My, my itch has been scratched. I have had my urge satisfied. I eat about five or six handfuls of the popcorn and I love it and I enjoy it. And then I'm, then I'm good. And then I put the bag down. I don't touch it for the rest of the movie. So a lot of popcorn goes away. I feel bad about that. A lot of popcorn goes away when I order it, but, but yeah. And I very, very rarely will get like anything else unless like Ann and I are going to the movies and Hey, we didn't have time to go get dinner first. So we're literally going to eat at the theater. All right. Then I'll pick up maybe a pretzel or a hot dog or something as well. But I honestly don't eat a lot when I go to the theaters. I always eat always, but I don't eat much, which is kind of weird. Anyway, thanks for sending that in, Sam. All right. Orange, uh, Orange County resident writes parts of Orange County being evacuated due to a massive bushfire uh thanks to the santa Ana winds and here i thought october was planning to go down without a fight gotta love 2020 i did not know about that and orange county is not that far from me and one of the only places in california where movie theaters are actually open i actually went to go see tenant in orange county um so i did not know that they were evacuating people around orange county that's about 45 minutes from me listen stay safe man stay i hope you're I hope you're good. I hope wherever you live is good. I hope your stuff is good. I hope your health is good. Best thoughts to you. I didn't know about this. I'm going to go look this up as soon as we're done the show here. All right. uh, Next up. Uh, Next up. Spiffy McGriff writes. Hey, John and Rob. Rob's not here anymore, unfortunately. No question today, but I have to tip for the pure childlike joy from both of you upon learning that Oscar Isaac was cast as Moon Knight. I completely share Rob's sentiment. 2020 has taken a lot, but this has been gift wrapped for the fans. What a great piece of news. For those of you who are late to the show today, uh, near the beginning of the show, news broke on Deadline that Oscar Isaac has been cast as Moon Knight for the upcoming Marvel Disney Plus series. And you know, we're speculating at any rate that you know they're probably going to transition him into some movies as well if you're getting a star the caliber of Oscar Isaac. And of course, Oscar Isaac, no stranger to working with Disney. He's just been Poe Dameron for them in their Star Wars movies. And now they want to keep working with them. They're putting him in their Marvel stuff as well. Huge stuff. If you want to see me and Rob talk about a little bit more, go back to the beginning of the show. It's right in the first part of the show. It was just kind of breaking news. But yeah, it was terrific news and i couldn't be happier for rob because i know rob has been wanting moon knight for a long long time and for them to first of all that they're doing it now we're seeing some progress and they got an actor of the caliber of oscar isaac terrific news i couldn't be happier for rob to be honest with you all right uh norwegian guy writes I find the lack of discussion of David Fincher's new movie, Mank, disturbing. Any thoughts on the trailer, which me as Citizen Kane absolutely loved? Well, we've talked about it a couple of times. Um, First of all, when the first teaser dropped, I was actually not that impressed with the first teaser. I I said, you take away Fincher's name, you take away Gary Oldman, and you just and, and still have the same trailer. I don't think anybody's talking about that trailer. The second trailer was a different story. The second trailer was significantly better. The, the first, I guess you could call the first true full trailer. That was a very good trailer. 
Now, as I've said before on the show, the one thing that makes me apprehensive, though, is because it is a Netflix original, right? 99 times out of 100, Netflix original movies completely suck. One time out of 100, you'll get a old guard or you'll get an Irishman or something like that. But for the most part, Netflix original movies suck. For every one good one they put out, there's about 99 garbage. And that's unfortunate. So... I am very curious about this movie. And as I said, we have discussed it a few times on the show already. Uh, but I'm, you know, I just got to wait till it comes out. And hopefully it'll be the next Irishman or hopefully the next old guard for them, uh, as opposed to one of the other, you know, things that just end up being a disappointment there. So we'll have to wait and see. All right. Uh, Besker Boy writes. Uh, hey, John, what are your favorite movies of the year so far? For me, it's uh, Nomad Land, Chicago 7, uh, Calm with Heroes, One Night in Miami, and Another Round. My two, fi- my two favorite films of the year. I haven't done any rankings yet, so I, you have to give me to the end of the year to do that. But I can tell you definitively what my two favorite are so far. My number one favorite movie of the year so far is actually uh, Chicago 7, Trial of the Chicago 7. Now, I still haven't seen Nomad Land yet. Uh, I'm watching that next week. I believe that's what I'm watching. Anyway, I believe I'm watching that next week. I'm very, very excited to watch it. But as of right now, my favorite movie of the year is Trial of the Chicago 7. My second favorite movie of the year. Oh, speaking of, you know, the odd one that actually works on Netflix, Trial of the Chicago 7. Um, my second favorite movie of the year, not a lot of people will agree with me, but I don't care. The Gentleman. I thought The Gentleman was at Matthew McConaughey. Um uh, why am I forgetting um, Jax's name? Uh, Jax Teller's name. I, I, anyway, I'm freezing it. Charlie Charlie Hunnam. That's who it is. Uh, Matthew McConaughey, Charlie Hunnam. Um, I was floored. I love that movie more than most people do. But as of right now, that's my number two favorite movie of the year. So we'll see where the rankings shake out once I see Nomadland uh, next week. All right. Final question of the day, guys. Right on time. We're hitting just about to hit 12 noon. Um, Man of Steel rules rights. When I was in the Navy station in Naples, Italy in 1992, the base theater was going to play The Last Starfighter. Oh, I love The Last Starfighter so much. Unfortunately, somebody labeled the reel wrong, and instead they played the 1986 BMX movie Rad, which Rob and I will talk about once in a while. It wasn't a horrible movie, though. Oh, but what a disappointment. Yeah, listen, we the reason we've been talking a lot about The Last Starfighter recently, besides the fact that just The Last Starfighter is awesome. It's an awesome movie and so needs a remake. We of course talked about on the show last week that the screenwriter just came out and said they finally cleared the rights issues. The rights issues are now all sorted out and they have officially now begun to develop with Gary Whitta, um, who of course is a screenwriter for star Wars rogue one, which was awesome um, is working with them and they are now officially developing the last Starfighter. It's a mix between a reboot and a sequel. He said, um, now, of course, it's not greenlit. It's not greenlit, but they have now started developing it. And then once they're done developing it, they can then take it to the studio who will either you know kill it or give it a green light to start production. So very, very excited about that. I couldn't be happier and I cannot wait. All right, guys, that will do it for this installment of the John Campius show. Thank you so much for being here, guys. And congratulations for starting a brand new week. I trust it'll be a good one for all of you. Guys, please make sure to do the four main things. Stay smart, stay safe, take care of yourselves, and please take care of the people around you. For those of you who are watching who are living in the United States of America or American citizens, 
Get out and vote. I'm not going to tell you which way to vote, but just get out and vote. I mean, it's something that, you know, is one of the ultimate supreme privileges of living in a country like this one. Um, and so please make sure you take on that responsibility. Get out, cast your vote, do what you got to do. I want to thank Robert Meyer Burnett for being here. Thank you to all of you for taking time out of your day to hang out with us and talk about movies with fellow movie fans. Awesome of you to do that. And a special thank you to all of you guys who sent in the live questions, not just because you gave us great fun things to talk about, but also because you supported this channel while you did it. And all of us here, thank you for that. And don't forget, guys, if you haven't done so already, why don't you take a second and click on that subscribe button, become a subscriber to the YouTube channel, keeping up to date on all the stuff that we've got going on here. All right, guys, that will do it for me. Thanks a lot for being here. My name's John Campia. And until next time, my friends, bye-bye.